Welcome back. It's great to have your company again. I'm James Paniki, the host of MLEX's weekly podcast covering regulatory affairs. This week, we can't ignore Google's huge US Supreme Court copyright win against Oracle over the Android operating system. This case has been going through the courts for the past 10 years, and this week's ruling marks the end of an era and will hopefully point the way forward for tech developers as they add value to existing coding. And in just over 10 minutes' time, we'll cross to Hong Kong for a chat about how an annual TV program is having an impact on privacy and data protection standards in China. It's a fascinating story, and our correspondent Xu Wan will be joining us for that very soon. First up, though, Google's Supreme Court defeat and what it means. MLEX's chief global digital risk correspondent is Mike Swift. Mike is no stranger to this podcast and no stranger indeed to the inside of courtrooms in Northern California. And I'm pleased to say that Mike is with us now from San Francisco. Okay, so in just a few words, Mike, tell us firstly what this week's Supreme Court ruling was all about. Yeah, sure. So um, most specifically, it was about whether it was legal for Google to copy 37 packets of application programming interface code from the Java programming language to create Android, which has, in uh, since it was created, become the most uh, frequently used uh, mobile operating system. So that was really the question at the heart of the case. And the answer at the heart of that case was that, yes, it is legal, right? In, in, I mean, in just a few words, the Supreme Court agreed with that proposition that Google was entitled to, uh, to copy those pieces of Java. They did. That's exactly right. But it was very much a binary yes-no question because the uh, federal appeals court below the Supreme Court had said what Google did was illegal. But the Supreme Court disagreed, as they frequently do with this particular appeals court, and they said that Google's copying was a legal fair use uh, of Java because it it was transformative of Java. It it, uh, took a piece of software that previously had run primarily on desktop computers and became the basis for something that ran on smartphones. And and that, the, the court said, was transformative. Mike, what was at stake here for Google? Was it really just the prospect of having to cough up a lot of money, maybe billions of dollars, or was there more to it than that? Well, there was certainly a lot of money at stake. Last district court trial that the two companies had, Oracle was seeking $9 billion worth uh, in damages, and that was in 2016, five years ago. That number was based on uh, the amount of money that Oracle said Android earned for Google. And obviously, uh, Google's revenues have increased quite substantially in the past five years. So, you know, we would have been looking at, you know, Oracle perhaps seeking upwards of, you know, 15, 20 billion dollars from Google. So that would have been quite quite a prospect. But beyond that, really ever since Oracle challenged, uh, filed this this, uh, client, this suit really back in 2010, there's kind of been a shadow over Android in the sense that there were, was always this intellectual property question of whether uh, Google had infringed in some way in, in copying parts of Java into Android. And that was something that was always a question. And Android is so central to Google's business because 
it is kind of the keystone to so many other facets of Google. It's search engine, uh, Gmail, it's apps. So, so, and it's advertising business, certainly, which is critical on, on, on mobile devices. So, um, this in one fell swoop really pulls that cloud away from, from Google and, and Android. So, uh, in a sense, it was just a really huge uh, decision for Google. And we've talked about the fact that this was a particularly long-running uh, court case. Why did it go on for so long, for, for, for more than a decade? Why the length of it? Uh, essentially, it was because neither side was willing to give up. I mean, Google didn't have the, the chance of... Well, I guess suppose they could have tried to settle, but that was just clearly not uh, something they were willing to do. And Oracle wasn't willing to give up. And there's been uh, quite a uh, sense of enmity that's really grown up between these two companies. But really, there were just so many appeals. And, and in the US court system, appeals take a long time. So there were two trials. Uh, both of those decisions were appealed up to the US Court of Appeals to uh, for the Federal Circuit. Federal Circuit reversed and sent them back down. And then finally, we had to climb up the ladder one more time and go all the way to the Supreme Court. And all those things together took more than a decade. So uh, it's been a long time coming, that's for sure. Well, we've talked about how Google dodged a bullet in terms of not being uh, forced to uh, cough up a lot of money, which it would have had to pay to Oracle. But more broadly, what is the impact of this final result, uh, both for Google and for the software industry in general? So many companies in and developers, certainly in the software industry, were relieved by this outcome because it really maintains the status quo in that it's uh, still easy for developers to use APIs to allow different types of software to interoperate without worrying too much about copyright problems. Um, if Oracle had won, there was a real fear that it would really have uh, a chilling effect on allowing different types of software to interoperate because there would be copyright questions. And so um, there were a lot of companies that lined up on Google's side, even though uh, otherwise they wouldn't have been uh, big fans of Google, such as Microsoft, uh, and supported Google's position in this case because they wanted to make sure that APIs could continue to be freely used. Why was copying, the definition uh, of copying, so crucial to the outcome? Because copying is so important in software, and um, it, it's kind of a paradox, but copying is really central to creativity in software. I mean, when you write software, you don't just write it from scratch the way you are, you know, typing words on a keyboard. You're uh, importing and copying code bases from a whole bunch of different places. And, and it's how you put those things together that really makes um, for a creative, effective piece of software. So, so it's important to be able to copy in software for software to be creative. Uh, it's kind of, that's kind of a paradoxical statement for writers, yes. but but uh, but it's true. What about copyright law and all of this? I mean, it seems to have come down to the definition of what is fair use under uh, copyright law. How was this issue? central to the Supreme Court's decision this week. Right. So um, it, that that's absolutely right. It was central. And um, there's in U.S. law, there's, there's a four-factor test 
for what is fair use. And fair use is, is basically um, what allows news organizations to do their job uh, in, you know, like say a, if a theater critic is uh, reviewing a movie, it's okay to show a clip of that movie and, and use that as the, the basis of a review because you're just showing a small part of the work and, and you're, you're, you're also transforming it. Comedy, for example, is well recognized as a type of fair use because you take a copyrighted work and you make fun of it. So you've transformed it. But in, in U.S. law, um, there's four factors in the test that are the purpose and character of the use, the nature of the copyrighted work, the amount of uh, and por- of the portion that's taken, and the effect of the use on the potential market. And all four of those factors in a very complicated way played into this decision. And that was uh, authored by uh, Justice Stephen Breyer. And uh, uh, it's, very, it's, it's a well-written opinion, uh, uh, really quite fun to read. Yes, well, I mean, the the notion that a judgment of this kind could be fun to read may take uh, some convincing. But uh, look, taking a few steps back to the Silicon Valley trial of 2016, why can we call that a paparazzi trial? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I always think of that trial as being, you know, one of the last uh, paparazzi moments here in Silicon Valley because... The real rock stars of the Valley are the CEOs. And uh, here you had uh, Larry Page, who was the co-founder of Google. You had Eric Schmidt, who is the uh, CEO where, you know, Google grew from a tiny startup into really an internationally prominent company. You had Larry Ellison, the very healthy, egoed CEO and co-founder of Oracle, and you had Safra Katz, uh, another prominent executive at Oracle, testifying. And finally, you had Andy Rubin, who was the guy who founded Android. So you had all these really seminal figures who were dragged into the courtroom and forced to testify about what they knew about this case. And and that was super interesting. Um, we're going to see another trial like that coming up soon when uh, Apple takes on Epic Games next month. And uh, Tim Cook of Apple will be testifying. So uh, another paparazzi moment is coming. You also had Judge Alsup, who learned to code in Java. I wonder if the Supreme Court uh, ruling stood up to that level of judicial commitment in its final take on the case. Yeah, one of the things that made the 2016 trial so entertaining was that Judge Alsup uh, was presiding. And he's a um, very interesting character, um, uh, a judge whose tie is all askew and sometimes his hair isn't quite uh, well combed. And uh, he's uh, sort of a down-home guy from Mississippi who's really an original thinker. And um, he took the extraordinary step of teaching himself the Java programming language to be prepared for this case. But in my reporting this week, after the Breyer decision came out, people I interviewed said that um, they gave Breyer really high marks for his technical rigor here, that he really um, took time to explain the difference between um, declaring code and implementing code and why that distinction was important. And, you know, that may have really put uh, software in general in really a good place going forward in terms of uh, its intellectual property uh, protections. So so uh, he, he got high marks for technical rigor, for sure. Now, we're talking about this case in terms of what it says about copyright law, but is there an antitrust angle to the case? And if there is, uh, how, despite Google's win, 
does it uh, dovetail with the search giant's other antitrust challenges in the U.S. and other countries? Sure. So um, Google, uh, as well as uh, groups such as the American Antitrust Institute, had argued that uh, if Oracle won, it would be dangerous because it would g give um, an ended one company just too much power. If it had a very um, critical software product, it would be very difficult for uh, other developers to build interactive apps with that using APIs. And that would just confer too much market power and would lead to real antitrust problems down the road. The irony is that Oracle is now saying that this decision has really made Google much more strong and that Google is um, an arrogant monopolist, which is willing to copy. And, and so there's a lot of irony there, certainly, but there, there's absolutely uh, an antitrust angle here. Now, another aspect of the court clash has been a very busy lobbying effort behind the scenes. We know uh, that Oracle has been telling lawmakers and regulators around the world about what it sees as Google's uh, excesses. Is that lobbying effort likely to continue following this verdict or is it all over now? So we don't know for sure what Oracle is going to do, but um, Oracle issued a statement which was very strongly worded, um, basically referring to Google, Google as a monopolist. And, um, you know, just as you've reported in Australia, uh, we've reported here that uh, Oracle has, um, you know, been a complainer about Google to the regulatory agencies and to the Department of Justice, to the state attorneys general. And I would be very surprised if, um, given the hostility which clearly exists between these companies, that if Oracle was just going to sort of give up and go away. So, um, you know, I, I think that it's likely that that will continue. Mike, this court clash has amounted to a mammoth uh, effort of coverage on your part. So thank you for going the distance and thank you for speaking to me today. Oh, thanks, James. It was fun. Mike Swift is MLEX's chief global digital risk correspondent and he was joining us from the MLEX offices in San Francisco. And we'll post a link to Mike's insightful analysis of the Supreme Court decision at our website, mlexmarketinsight.com. That's M-L-E-X marketinsight.com. And just click on the News Hub tab. Coming up, how privacy issues in China are going mainstream. You're listening to MLEX's weekly podcast, which can be downloaded on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify and Stitcher. James Panicki with you. Thank you for making it this far. Now, as our subscribers will know already, China has been making some significant changes to privacy policy settings over recent years with a raft of legislation that covers privacy and data protection, among other issues. But it wasn't clear whether those changes would translate to a stronger understanding of privacy issues on the part of the Chinese public. Well, there are recent indications suggesting that privacy is indeed resonating more widely and mass media is playing a part in this. Xu Wan covers Chinese regulatory affairs for MLEX and she joins me now from our offices in Hong Kong. Okay, so Xu Wan, uh, China's cybersecurity law has been around since June 2017. We've discussed that um, previously on this podcast. What is the public awareness of data protection now like in China? Um, thanks, James. So the law is um, 
very comprehensive law. It covers several aspects, and data protection is one of them. Over the past several years, the I would say the public awareness of data protection in China has been increasing rapidly and steadily. Partly thanks to the government's、um, advocacy efforts,、um, for example, the government has been、uh, holding a cybersecurity week since 2014.、Um, so this usually is one week, and the government will select a city.、Um, so during this week, there will be、uh, exhibitions of new security technologies. For example,、um, technologies developed by companies like Tencent and Alibaba, and also there will be、um, sessions uh, where uh, experts are invited to give speeches on on data security. Some of the subjects can be very technical,、um, but some are facing the general public. Another aspect of government advocacy is reflected in the coverage of such issues by state media. So,、um, CCTV is the China's state-owned、um, TV. Every year on March fifteenth, which is the World Consumer Rights Day, the TV station has a show, annual show, and in this show, it usually will have,、um, it usually will cover. Around ten issues.、Uh, those issues are very closely connected with people's everyday life.、Uh, for example, in the most recent one, there are issues such as fake advertising,、um, restaurants using expired food ingredients, flawed auto parts from famous brands,、um, substandard adult diapers. And drugstores without licensed pharmacists. So these are very like everyday issues in our lives.、Um, and increasingly, state-owned media, including CCTV, has been covering the issue of、uh, personal data protection. And you can see in recent years this issue appearing on this show、uh, about consumer rights.、Mm. Just remind us what the name of the TV show is.、Um, it's. Generally known as CCTV three one five show in China. All right, so it has obviously brought data protection issues、uh, to a wider audience, which does point to an evolving sense of awareness in the countries. But are consumers taking action now to protect themselves as a result of all of this successful advocacy?、Um, yes. Nowadays, you see, so so China has something like Twitter called Weibo, and、uh, there is、uh, it's a very popular social media platform in China. And over the years, since the cybersecurity law came into effect,、uh, every now and then you see、uh, discussions on a certain practice by a company that's discovered by an individual on the internet.、Um, sometimes this person can be a tech. Um, tech guy, or some sometimes it's a lawyer, and in their own experience, they found uh, something uh, not right in their using,、uh, for example, apps developed by China's、uh, internet companies. And usually, this kind of discussions can attract a lot of heat on on social media, and then it may also attract、um, the regulators' attention. One example. Would be、uh, one social media company in China once developed an app, which you can use to、uh, change 
the face of a character in a movie clip in、uh, into your own face. And at first, it became such popular. And then someone on the internet found out that、uh, they were collecting more、um, information than necessary. And then it, it instantly became an alarming issue, and that company was subsequently、uh, called in by the regulator to,、uh, which asked asked the company to to make、uh, changes in its practice. And aside from this social media、uh, discussion, cons- individual consumers are also taking action,、uh, legal action against what they think are、uh, not correct. Uh, data handling practice. One one of the most high profile cases in、uh, in, in recent years is、uh, a man in the city of Hangzhou. So this man, I think he is a, a university professor. He filed a lawsuit against a local zoo. It's called Hangzhou Safari Park、uh, over the park's use of facial recognition technology for entrance. That case was widely considered、um, the first ever lawsuit in China in concerning the use of facial、uh, recognition technology, which has become increasingly popular in China. And aside from that case, there are individuals filing lawsuits、uh, against these big、um, internet companies. So so far,、um, according to、uh, public information. Uh, companies that have been sued by individuals over the use of of personal data include、um, the video streaming site、uh, iQiyi, Tencent, which operates、um, the messaging app WeChat, and China's version of Google,、uh, Baidu, and the short the TikTok, the short、uh, video apps owner. Now these are clearly important companies, and that、uh, points to the,、uh, the the significance of these developments. The, in the background of all of this, of course, and you and I have talked about this before, there is an evolving evolving regulatory、uh, framework. China has just adopted a new civil code、uh, just this year. Which recognises individuals' rights to have protection of privacy and personal data. What difference、uh, does this law make in terms of individuals' legal recourse to protect their data?、Um, in the past, I would say this law definitely helps and supports, and probably makes it easier for individuals、uh, to protect themselves by、um, legal means. So in the past, a lot of these data-related cases were resolved based on contract laws, including the one that I just mentioned about facial recognition.、Um, but the civil code, the civil code is a is a law that combines several laws, previous laws in China, into one, such as marriage law and tort law.、Um, but it has a newly newly created chapter called personality rights. In this section,、um, the privacy rights and right to have one's personal information or personal data protected are included. And shortly after the law took effect, starting this year,、uh, China's Supreme People's Court announced it had made revisions to、uh, current rules to make it easier f- to file lawsuits over causes including protection of personal data and privacy intrusion. Also, 
there is another law、um, which is currently being made called Personal Information Protection Law. The draft of that law, which was released last October,、uh, also says that lawsuits can be filed by authorities against data. Processors, if their activities cause harm of a certain scale,、um, so these are all,、um, I think, the government's efforts to, to, to make it easier for individuals to file a lawsuit against、um, businesses. And for the companies that might be targeted, I mean, should they be paying attention to this trend? Are the consequences that they might be facing significant enough to warrant their attention?、Um, So far, the consequences don't seem to be significant. For example, a lot of these individuals, they in in filing these lawsuits, they were asking for a correction of practice、um, by the company,、um, or a very small amount of money as damage, or a public apology.、Um, but I think for companies. They should be worried about、uh, publicity and uh, uh, reputation. For example, in China, what usually follows the the CCTV's annual show about consumer rights are online discussions, meaning more people will know about the issues, and also sometimes、um, regulators are. Very quick in following up on this exposure of malpractices by by the CCTV. So in that sense, companies could be with more、um, increased、uh, public awareness and attention from state media coverage from state state media.、Uh, there is definitely a reputation issue that companies needs to take into consideration and also follow up enforcement. And apart from that, China has a very special、um, framework called、uh, public interest lawsuits. These are lawsuits filed on behalf of, for example, victims or the state、uh, by prosecutorial authorities. So far, public interest lawsuits involving data abuse or data protection.、Uh, there are two kinds of、um, these lawsuits. One is Uh, of criminal nature, so these are usually lawsuits involving telecom scams, illegally selling people's data for for scam purpose. So this is a crime in China. So there is a lot of these cases, but these cases cases usually target individuals. But another type of the lawsuits, public interest lawsuits,、um, that the authorities are exploring right now is、uh, lawsuits against. A certain practice by a certain company. For example,、um, recently a local prosecutorial authority in the city of Hangzhou announced that、uh, they filed a lawsuit accusing、uh, a Chinese popular short video platform, which it didn't name.、Um, so it accuses this company of unclear privacy terms concerning teenage users. And the company eventually settled the lawsuit by agreeing to corrective requirements re- raised by the authorities, and they have、uh, filed similar public interest lawsuits against companies in the past.、Uh, one there is one I can remember is、uh, against、uh, the search engine company Baidu. So, so I think there 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 is likely to be more of these kind of cases in the future. 
All right, certainly something for us to continue to watch out for, particularly if we're planning to use the app in which we put our faces into uh, famous movies, which is uh, something that I don't do regularly, but maybe I should consider doing more often. But Shu Wan, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thanks, James. Shu Wan is an MLEX reporter based in Hong Kong, and her analysis of the growing public awareness about privacy issues in mainland China is on our website for you to read. Just go to mlexmarketinsight.com. That's mlexmarketinsight, all one word, .com, and click on the News Hub tab. And sadly, that's all we have time for in this week's podcast. We'll be back in your feed next Friday at more or less the same time. I'm James Paniki, Asia-Pacific Senior Editor here at MNEX. Thank you very much for your company this week. I'll see you again very soon. Bye for now. Bye for now.